Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all here today. Especially want to be grateful for the family that's here in town. It's good to have you with us. I'd like to spend a few minutes today talking about a very simple, but I think often overlooked topic, the topic of kindness. Now, before you wave it off and say, oh, I know what kindness is. I understand kindness. I get it, right? I grok kindness. I know, I know what it means. Let's really step back for just a minute and say, what is kindness? What can we learn about kindness from Scripture, from God himself, um, that we can see how he exemplifies it? But before we go into kindness, let's take a, just a quick minute and, and think about what it means to be genuine. Think in your, in your history of the people you know, of somebody who really appears genuine, who really appears to be who they are, right? You don't have to worry about somebody putting on airs. You don't have to worry about somebody, um, you know, making appearances for appearances' sake. But somebody who's really who they are. You know them for who they are. You don't have to worry, are they really thinking something else? Are they really, you know, do they have a different opinion? What it, where, where are they? Who are they, really? But somebody who really is genuine, somebody who really is who they are, and what you see is who they are. There's no worry about um, being honest. There's no worry about deception or dissimulation. Um, but think about somebody who really is genuine and clear on who they are. What does that look like? What does that mean for us as their friends or their relatives? And when we think about that, we think about a person being genuine, about being transparent, about being who they are. That's really the idea that we see in Scripture of the word kindness. Now, when we look at how that, that same term that's translated as kindness in the New Testament was used in ancient times, it really it, it was, had a sense of something being fit for its purpose, something basically doing what it's meant to do. Um, a Band-Aid, for example, is good if it covers the wound and keeps it from getting infected. That's the purpose of a Band-Aid, right? That's what it does. And if it's good, then it executes that charge. It executes that purpose faithfully. As Christians, we're called to be genuine. We're called to be clear and transparent in who we are, what we believe, right? And what we're willing to do or not do as followers of God. And so that, in, in fact, is right in line with the idea of, of being kind in the New Testament. So we need to, to have that attitude. We need to have that thought of being kind and genuine to those around us. But thinking it is the first step only. We need to take that idea of kindness and rather than being really God's children and knowing it, to acting it and to exhibiting that. It's more than just thinking it, it's doing it. It's behaving it in that way. To think of it in another sense, to borrow a, a phrase from Rick Ocasek, dating myself, I know, but um, he has a, a song where he says, emotion in motion, emotion in motion. And that's exactly what the idea of kindness is. It's emotion put into action. It's emotion in motion. But it's more than just general 
actions. It's more than just general activities. It's activities that are intended to help and to support others. If we are kind, if we are generous as God's children, then we are exhibiting that genuine spirit that we're called to have. Over the last couple of weeks um, and months, um, we've heard 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33. If we'll turn there just for a minute. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 33. 32 and 33. We read, If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Does anybody know where that phrase, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, comes from? Um, It actually comes from, it's a quotation in this instance, it's a quotation um, from the Old Testament, from Isaiah chapter 22 and verse 13. The Assyrians were at the door of Jerusalem's gate, and they were ready to attack it and ready to sack the city. God had been warning the, the Israelites, your city will fall to the Assyrians. The Assyrians will capture Jerusalem. What was the response? What was the answer? Let's repent. Let's go back and listen to God. We've been studying Jeremiah for many weeks in the, uh, in the Wednesday night class. And over the last 30 chapters, we've seen time and time again, God says, repent, turn around. Jeremiah is God's prophet and says, God is telling me to warn you that the Babylonians are coming. Turn around and stop what you're doing. What's the answer? What does Judah answer there in Jeremiah? And what does Israel answer in Isaiah? Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Giving up. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to live my own life. I'm going to be my own person. And as we know, the Assyrians captured Jerusalem. So we see that God's prophecies come true. That we can willfully disobey and disregard what God has told us. But it will happen. In verse 33, the next verse. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. There was a writer at that time named Menander. And he wrote that quote. It was a quotation from him. Bad company corrupts good morals. You've heard of the word cacophony, right? Cacophony is a bunch of sounds that that are terrible, that really just don't go together. Imagine a a two-year-old sitting at a keyboard and just pounding on a keyboard. Just awful. Doesn't fit, doesn't go right. And that's exactly the same word that's used here, by corrupting. Bad company corrupts good morals. It, It disintegrates it. It breaks it apart. It takes what's natural, what fits together, and it tears it apart. It tears it asunder. And yet when we, we hear uh, good morals here, the morals that are good is the same word that's translated elsewhere in the New Testament as kind. They're morals that are meant to be exhibited. They're morals that are meant to be as children of God, as followers of God, um, those who respect him and follow him. That is how we exhibit our beliefs and our behaviors in those morals that fit together and are genuine from our spirit. Even as we see in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, that kindness is one of the elements of the fruit of the Spirit. We have to realize and understand where that sense of kindness comes from. What is the source of this kindness? And what is the ultimate example of that kindness? Let's turn over to Matthew chapter 11 and verse 30. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 30. A very common well-known verse. 
If you don't recognize it by chapter and verse, you'll know it when you get there. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, easy in that sense isn't, um, isn't what we think of today as simple or, or um, no-brainer, right? Uh, the same word that's translated as kindness, translated as good morals in 1 Corinthians 15, is translated as easy here. It's because it comes from his very spirit. Um, it's the way he is. It's who he is that Christ himself, when his burden is light, his yoke is, rec- is representing who he truly is. That there's no lying, there's no dishonesty in him representing himself Um, as being a light burden or a yoke that is easy. Christ is being honest. He's being genuine here. But even even though it is easy for us in this verse, it wasn't easy for God. God himself decided that he would sacrifice his son, and we were looking in Luke chapter 6 and verse 35, to what we read as ungrateful and evil men. That God was kind to them. Why would God be kind to ungrateful and to evil men? Because that's who God is. That's emanating from God's spirit. Just as Christ himself was honest and genuine, God himself was, continues to be kind. And that verse, Luke six thirty-five, that word kind there is the same word that's used as easy and in Matthew eleven thirty and good. In 1 Corinthians 15, 33. It comes from his very nature. It emanates from who he is. Not only does God's actions toward us, in that we were unbelieving, um, represent who he is and his true nature, but Christ himself is a representation of God's true nature. Let's turn over to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. I've quoted before chapter 5 and verse 1 where he reads, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. One verse before that, but I think very closely and tied with it, says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. As God's forgiveness has emanated from himself through his Son, we are called to have that same attitude in us. And it continues also into the beginning of chapter 5. God has forgiven us. Even though through the sacrifice of his son, it was not easy for him to do that, he still continued to forgive us. So how is Christ an exemplification of the kindness of God? Let's turn over to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. If you've gotten to Philemon, one book too far. Titus chapter 3. A short letter. I'd suggest any of you take a few minutes and read uh, the letter of Titus. But in the first seven verses of chapter 3 of the last chapter of the book, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration of all men. 
For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. At this point, the picture we have is pretty dire. It's a picture of fighting, of of conflict, of jealousy, of, of being torn apart, something that doesn't fit together. It's not who we're called to be. And yet we see that all of that, what was wrong before, is made right when Christ comes. In verse 4 and following, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The kindness of God is the gift that Jesus Christ has given to us through his sacrifice, through his giving of his own blood and sacrificing his life for us. That is the manifestation of God's kindness toward us. And that manifestation comes when we respond to it. We recognize it and when we realize it, when the call that he has made for us to turn back from our evil deeds. Turn over a couple of books to the right, so First Peter chapter 2, and we'll continue to read on the kindness of God. First Peter chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. Again, called to repent from our old ways. We read, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. The promise that God has given to us through his Son is something that we have available to us, but it is our responsibility to answer the call, to come and respond to what God has promised to us and made available to us. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean in our lives? We know that God is honest, God is genuine, that there is no dissimulation, there's no lying in God's person, that he wants us to be saved, as we read in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 6. God wants us to respond to his call. But because of our free will, the onus is on us to respond to that call, to answer that call, recognizing the, the salvation that we have through his son's sacrifice. God wants that for us. He loves us. He has offered us forgiveness through his son's sacrifice and through this kindness. So our call is to imitate, as we read before, imitate God in following the same kindness that emanated from himself, from his very being, that he would sacrifice his own son for us. Our call is to have that same attitude in ourselves. We see in Philippians chapter 2 that Christ emptied himself, and we're called to have that same spirit in ourselves, to empty ourselves. Let's turn over to Romans chapter 2. 
Romans chapter 2. I'll read the first eight verses. Therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment in that, what, in that which you judge another, you condemn yourselves. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O oh man, when you pass judgment on those who practice the, such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who, have, who by perseverance in doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. We see that the letter to the Romans is a charge both for the, the Jews and for the Gentiles to recognize that their former life, that their old ways, is not responding, is not answering the call, is not making the sacrifice that we're called to make as God has exemplified for us. That the kindness, that the purpose that we're given is, in fact, to respond to the call that God has made. But let's turn over to a few, few more chapters, to chapter 11 in Romans. For we see that this promise will not last forever. That there is an end to the kindness of God. Romans chapter 11 and verse 22. Behold then the kindness and severity of God. Wait a second. I'm good with kindness. I'm not so good with severity. Can we leave the severity part out? Can we just pretend that God is all kindness and no severity? It would make my life much easier, much happier. Right? It's, it would be much better for me that way. Unfortunately, that's not the way God works. That's not who God is. But we see, behold, then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. So we're called here not only to understand and to respond to the kindness that God has exhibited through, to us through his son, to answer the call and to respond, but also to remain faithful in that response. To remember the kindness that God has shown us and continue to remember that in how we live our lives. Ultimately, the final plea is to respond and continue in that faithfulness. As we see in Revelation the 2 and verse 10, be faithful unto the point of dying for your beliefs, unto the point of death, and you will receive the crown of life. But let's turn over a couple of books to 2 Corinthians 6, and we'll finish in chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians. A final call to remain faithful and to answer the plea, to recognize the kindness, but also the severity of God. 2 Corinthians 6, the first six verses, and then picking up from 11 through 18. And working together with him, 
we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time, and now is the day of salvation, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited. But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, and in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, and in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and the genuine love. Skipping down to 11. Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is opened wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now is a like exchange. I speak to you as children. Open wide to us also. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness when lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out of their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters to me says the Lord Almighty. That's the call that God is making to us. That is the plea that God is making to us. That he is willing to send his son as an example of the kindness of his being, of his ultimate person, of who he is. That he would sacrifice his son for us, that we can have that hope of eternal life. And we're called to have that same kindness, that same attitude in ourselves, in our walk, in who we are as his children. If you have not yet answered the call, if you have not yet put Christ on in baptism, this is a time to respond. This is a time to recognize both the kindness and the severity of God, to answer the call that God is making. He will be your God, and we will be his people. That call is made to you now. If you need to put Christ on in baptism and answer the call, won't you make your needs known as we stand and sing?